sleep. I only understood the value of sleep when I lost it. That happened at exactly the same time I became a parent. Whether it's the bone-crushing sleep deprivation of the early weeks and months, or the interrupted nights from wet beds and sick children, sleep is never the same. I'm Siobhan Hunt, and this is The Promise of Sleep, a podcast that explores all the ways parents and babies can get more sleep. Of course, you can't sleep unless your baby sleeps. And there's the rub. This is episode three, Sleep School, Self-Settling. Babies are hard to work out, and sometimes we need help. Oh my goodness, we've tried a few things. We've kind of tried, um, when he was breastfeeding, we've tried my partner going in to settle him. We've tried um, a couple of nights of controlled crying. We've tried to kind of let him <laughs> let him kind of cry for a bit and try and settle back. Some nights he's just up talking and we just leave him. Um, it just, we've tried a lot. <laughs> and I think because he's eight months old and he's just on the go all the time, you barely really get a break. So eight months of that has been pretty tiring. <laughs> In episode two, we looked at how to choose a sleep consultant to help you understand your baby's sleep patterns. In today's episode, we meet Sarah Hamish and their eight-month-old son, Ali, who isn't sleeping well at night. Sarah has heard Mothercraft nurse Chris Minogue give advice on sleep and settling on Kindling Helpline, a weekly show on Kindling Conversation, a show I also host. She likes the way Chris cuts through the noise, and she's aware that Chris uses a technique called self-settling. She also likes the fact that Chris has been doing this for over 30 years. Just a note on self-settling. Basically, this is a technique that's the evolved cousin of controlled crying, or letting a baby cry it out. If you were doing controlled crying, you would shut the door and walk away, letting a baby cry itself to sleep. Self-settling, on the other hand, involves letting a baby cry a little bit, then responding when it feels right. Chris explains how she makes it work. I think with self-settling and how I approach self-settling, which might be the better way, is to take what the baby knows and to modify it into a pattern where the baby can learn to have periods of time to try and settle with the comfort of the parents coming in. Now, how long those gaps are depend on age, timing, the way the baby's behaving at the time and the approach of the parents to be able to do it in a consistent way. Let's get back to Sarah, Hamish and Ali. Chris, this is my husband, Hamish. Hi, Hi Hamish. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to you meet going? you too. Come on in. Thank you. Can get you water, tea? Oh, tea would be really yeah, lovely. Sure. Chris has come to visit them in their home and over a cup of tea, she gets down to work. She's like a detective, putting together the pieces of what's really going on for Ali. It doesn't take long to work out where the wheels of Ali's sleep train started getting wobbly. About a month earlier, Ali ended up in hospital after a week of gastro, an upsetting experience for the whole family. Sarah and Hamish came out of that, determined to make sure their son was well hydrated. So pretty much like since coming home, it, we always fed him after he woke up. So like after, after he, he, so when he'd wake up from a nap, he'd have a feed. And that's the sort of things we're going to start with. We're going to start with, well, what in the day is appropriate for his age? Yeah. And, and then, so sort of doing this in two parts. One part is let's get him back in the rhythm. Yeah. 
let's get the food under control yep. and the bottles under control yep. and get the timing and the sequence back in place. Yep. And then looking at what you do to get him to sleep now, moving from there to getting him to do it independently. It's incredible watching Chris at work. I'm as confused as Sarah and Hamish. I wouldn't have a clue how you'd work out what's making Ali wake so much at night. But after a bit of chatting, Chris has solved the mystery. Basically, Ali is drinking too much at night, which throws out his sleep patterns and reduces his appetite during the day. So then he's hungry at night and drinks too much milk, and the cycle continues. Later, I ask Chris how she manages to pick up on what's really happening. Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, I think in my head, because I have a little bit of knowledge before I land into that family, like the age of the baby and what's going on, then I've already thought about it on the way there, about what would I be expecting from that baby and, you know, it, we were expecting him to have a night problem. And look, all the people that I basically go and see have some sort of sleeping problem. But if there's another trigger, other than the fact that the baby's just not able to go to sleep, then it's not going to work. So we have to fix all those things in between. So we have to have predictability for the baby so they can learn what we're asking it to learn. And in this case, it's to help with the night sleep. I think we need to tick the boxes. So he was drinking a lot of milk, not eating a lot of food. So that has an impact on just who he is and how he feels. Like he, we worked out he nearly had nearly a litre of milk or half a litre of milk. That was it overnight. And so I think anybody who drinks half a litre of milk is not going to feel like they're able to sleep. So I'm taking all of those things into consideration. If we were able to just tick the boxes and say, yes, he had three meals in the day and he had three bottles and they were reasonable size and quantity and he had two good sleeps, then we would have just gone into the behaviour around his night sleeping. But if we try and tackle the milk plus the change of the way that they were settling in, I think the parents become overwhelmed and therefore they don't see the little steps that children make to move forward or babies make to move forward. So by changing his milk and seeing that he's more settled has helped his night sleep or will help his night sleep. So then we'll actually get down to the, the actual point of where the difficulty is. So by cutting back the milk, we might get him to sleep longer and then we've only got one wake up instead of three wake ups that we're dealing with. Once Chris has identified the problem, she works out a strategy for Hamish and Sarah to adopt with Ali. I think you were pretty much there and then a few things collided together and it sort of didn't come back again. Yeah. So now we're going to bring it back together. But the most significant thing we can see is that he drinks an awful lot of milk overnight mm. at the moment. Yeah. So if somebody came in here and said, well, that's too much and we just have to cut it all out, he would go ballistic and you would find it really difficult because the skill isn't there to work out what to do. So we're going to work in three night windows and all we're going to do now is physically reduce how much we give him overnight and that'll still make him cranky yeah. because he's used to a lot more. Yeah. So how much do you put in the bottles when you go to give him a bottle overnight? 240. Yeah. We do. We did start cutting it down a little while ago. We read, like, I think we'd read something somewhere, like, that's how to start doing it. We did start cutting it down. And he was I, staying late for about an hour overnight. Yeah, because I think this is a really tough one because you'll, you, you'll have to start with one bad night. Yeah. 
to get him to eat better in the day to be able to then reduce again. So normally we try and reduce in the day or fix in the day so that by the night they're getting, you know, they're more aware. But in this case, we're going to have to cut it down at night. Mm. So the next part is when to. So you need to pick a window that you've got three nights to be able to do this where it has less of an impact on you. Chris maps out a plan, giving Ali three days to adjust to each change introduced to his sleep and feeding pattern. After the initial consult, Chris stays in touch via phone and text. We check in a week later to see how it's all going. So the first night he woke up, he ate well and he woke up at about 20 to 12 was his first wake up. So that was later than normal. And I went in and I resettled him. And And how long did that take? Listen to this. He literally, <laughs> I picked him up, I cuddled him. He was like, what the hell? Why is there no bottle? Screamed. I put him back down. He rolled over and fell asleep. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But when is it ever a walk in the park? When Chris gives advice on how to adjust an erratic sleep pattern, she always reminds parents that it's very rare the technique will work straight away. It takes time for the baby to get used to the new approach, but the key is being consistent. So I'm leaving him. At first he was screaming, like, bring me my milk, it's time for my feed. Um, but now he, I have been leaving him, he hasn't been screaming And he'll kind of chatter to himself and then he'll start, you know, saying, where the hell are you? Hurry up. Um, And then I'll go in and give him a cuddle, put him back down, which he hates. (laughs) He hates that you put him back down. Yeah, he's like, no, no, he loves the cuddle, but he's kind of like, this isn't what I'm asking for. Um, And then he kind of just rolls over and, you know, goes back to sleep at some stage. (laughs) And how have you found responding to him when he's, going crazy and wanting milk like how have you found it have you needed to steal yourself or were you at the point where you're like no this is what I need to do so buddy you're just gonna have to wait I think because um I saw that it was working and that he was responding well to it that I had confidence in what Chris was saying and the guidance that she gave us um I think if he wasn't doing what I expected or getting better that I would have probably felt a little bit more, yeah, doubted, doubted and, it. But and yeah. then had to go in. To yeah, and would have gone in. But, you know, he wasn't, he'd only get really quite upset when he wasn't given what he expected. So I guess I'd taught him that by just going in all the time and feeding him. So, yeah, I felt like he was learning and it was good. I know this is a bit of a process and that you're working through things, but are you getting more sleep now or is this still a light at the end of the tunnel? It's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. Last night was rough. Um, I think I finally fell asleep at, I think, probably quarter to 12 and then he woke up at 12 uh. <laughs> and then that took about 30, 40 minutes And then I was wired after that because I'd been getting up and going and screaming and watching the monitor and and then fell back asleep. And then the next one was three. So it's, it's, I think it's harder because when he was feeding, it was literally grab a bottle, put it in, back to sleep. Sarah and Hamish now have a strategy that appears to be working with Ali. 
Let's give them a moment to apply the next steps on their path to a better night's sleep. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're keen to try new things to get your baby to sleep. Why not try Bedtime Explorers? It's Kindling's relaxing meditation series designed specifically for little ones, featuring the soothing voice of mindfulness coach Amy Taylor-Kabaz. Breathe in and fill up the balloon in your belly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Promise of Sleep, a kindling podcast, hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt. Let's check in on Sarah to see how she's going after a couple of weeks of hard work. Oh my goodness. So, Ali slept through the night. It was unbelievable. There were a couple of little peeps, but we woke up at 5.30 and looked around and looked at the monitor and he was still asleep. And I looked at my husband and we were like, oh my God, quick, let's go back to sleep. (laughs) And and could you go back to sleep? No. (laughs) I couldn't. I was too excited. I was just so excited to go in there in the morning and go, oh my God, you slept through. Come here, sweet child. <laughs> but yeah, he woke up at 6.30 and he got so many kisses and cuddles and he actually pushed my face to the side. He was like, what are you doing? Like, let me get up. Oh no, that that is incredible. And so how did you feel that day? Like, did you, uh, could you notice what it felt like to sleep? Yeah. My husband especially was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I could get used to this. Like, do you think he'll do it tomorrow night? We were just, yeah, we were just so happy. It worked. (laughs) And so what happened the next night? So the next night happened again. So just a few kind of like little, not whimpers, but just like, and then rolling over. Um, And then the next night, the same thing, woke up at 6.30 and was hungry and wanted to have his breakfast and gulp down a couple of wheat bix and play and seemed to be chatting a lot more. So I felt like, you know, he got really good rest himself. Brilliant. So does this mean the family now, it's all good? You don't need any more help? Well, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Not last night, but the night before he did wake at 3.30am and he did cry quite a bit and needing me to go in a couple of times to resettle him. But then last night he slept through again. So I don't know. Hopefully it's just going to keep happening. So what happens next for Sarah, Hamish and Ali? Chris Minogue points out that there will be setbacks. Where people get stuck is they have this beautiful baby sleeping for a month or six weeks and then that child gets a bit of a head cold and they revert so far backwards so they start feeding them again and taking them to bed with them whereas actually what we should do is one, treat the cold, treat the head cold, make him as comfortable as you can for his age so he's got a little temperature, give him some Panadol, whatever the thing is that's going to make him comfortable and then modify what you do, don't go backwards. Mm-hmm. So where we would let him cry for X number of minutes, we might only let him cry for a few minutes and we might go in and pat him, but we pat for longer. Chris says that success is often dependent on the relationship she forms with the parents seeking help. I really believe that you have to work from the place of where the baby's at before you can change their pattern. So I need the parents to tell me what's going on. So the most significant thing that we found out is he was drinking a lot of milk. And that must have an impact on the way he sleeps. So by decreasing that, we're starting from the right base. And so I think that 
that in the end, you have to have that relationship with the parent. And sometimes I walk into a house and that parent has got me over, but they don't want to hear that answer. And it's going to take much longer or it's not going to work between us. So I don't think it's a fast rule for everybody. I think it's the way that you communicate with two people that allows the trust to build to give them the answer that they need with the baby. That's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email. It's podcast at kindling.com.au. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. On the next episode of The Promise of Sleep, we're delving into the elephant in the room, co-sleeping. Certainly co-slept bed shared with my own children and I support parents if they want to do this. I still think it's a matter of personal choice and it's really important to open that conversation so that parents are doing this safely. We'll be speaking with parenting educator Pinky McKay plus the director of the Mother Baby Behavioural Sleep Lab, James McKenna and Lorraine Harrison, safe sleep educator from Red Nose. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you then.